0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please welcome back Dr. John Cutterback.
1: I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very excited about what we have to look at here tonight. Um, we're, I, I should have said this to Deacon beforehand. I'm hoping maybe we can have just a little bit longer. I didn't get approval for this for question and answer. Not not for the lecture itself, but maybe a little shorter on the lecture, a little bit more, um, because it it's uh, might be something that we will want to be able to have a little bit of back and forth on. It's a highly practical point. So so let's let's go ahead. It's of course two two weeks here. Uh, the the subtitles for each of the weeks are as follows. Today is a creature of habit, for better or for worse. And the title for next week will be Cultivating Excellence, Hoeing the Row to Greatness. So just a quick overview. Today will be more foundational points of kind of why we act as we do, fundamentally looking at the issue of the formation of what St. Thomas calls habits and how that plays into human action in general. So these are fundamental key principles of any moral philosophy of understanding of human action. And next week is going to be a little bit more practically oriented of given the truths that we talked about this week, how might we go about trying to cultivate good habits? How might we go about actually trying to cultivate the habits that we will have talked about today? Both lectures ultimately, ladies and gentlemen, are going for a key point of moral philosophy. Moral philosophy is a science that seeks to understand human actions. Human actions are voluntary actions. Voluntary actions are actions for which we are responsible. The great drama of human life might be cast in these terms. Will we choose well in our voluntary actions or not? Yeah, I I, I say to you, Is this not really the fundamental drama that there is? What else, I ask you, is dramatic? What else hangs in the balance? God is eternally stable. The angels have fundamentally cast their lot the remaining great drama that there is is really simply this will our actions be what they should be or not really what else matters will our actions for which we are responsible for they are ours. Will they be what they should be or not? On my handout, I put a quotation. If any of you happen to be here for the series we did not that long ago on St. Thomas's Summa, you will recognize this quotation. This is at the beginning of St. Thomas's second part of the Summa, which is the moral part of the Summa, by far the largest part. Here is that key part of the very short prologue. Now that we have treated of the exemplar, i.e., God, and of those things which came forth from the power of God in accordance with his will, it remains for us to treat of his image, that is, man, inasmuch as he too is the principle of his actions, as having free will and control of his actions. The very simple and beautiful point here, ladies and gentlemen, is this. After St. Thomas has looked at God, who freely created and is complete master of his own actions, now he comes in moral theology to study human actions, inasmuch as man, like God, can be called master of his actions. Voluntary actions, again, are ones that come forth from deep within us such that they can be said to be ours in such a profound way that we are held responsible for them. As Aristotle says so well, human actions really are the things for which there is praise or blame. You don't praise or blame the actions of dogs of rivers, of trees, but humans are responsible, so responsible, it's always good for us to remind ourselves of this. This is a, simply a philosophical point. We are so responsible for our actions, it is clear that it makes sense that the truth of our faith that one day we will stand before God in the judgment at the judgment seat and Our actions will be laid bare. One thing will be very, very clear. The actions that we have done were ours. And because they were ours, if they are good, we, by the grace of God, but we are worthy of reward. And if they were bad, then we are worthy of something else. Again, therein is the drama of the moral life. So that's the background for what we want to look at. Our topic then specifically has to do with what St. Thomas and Aristotle call habits. To understand habits is absolutely key to understand well human actions. So let's always bear in mind that we want to understand all that we can about human actions because we are master of our actions, we are responsible for our actions, we want our actions to be all that they can and should be. Unto that end, we want to look closely at the realm of habits, for really we will not understand our actions, nor will we ultimately perform the kind of actions we should unless we are forming habits of a certain kind. So. The first thing that we need to see is that we are creatures of habit. Once, uh, years ago, I was giving a lecture in Kansas on this topic. And I thought, well, this is perfect. I'll just choose an example that fits Kansas to try to illustrate this. And I I don't think they actually appreciated it that much. I, I assumed that they were all farmers. But I, I, I think that ended up not being the case, particularly since we were at the university. Maybe not, maybe not everyone at the University of Kansas is actually f- farming. I, why they wouldn't be farming in Kansas, I don't know. But in any case, I used the example that I thought would really just touch them right at their core was, let's just say that you go into the co-op store, and you see a shiny new pitchfork there. And we all know that you'd love to have that shiny new pitchfork, and you realize that the clerk who is in charge of the store is gone right now, you know, in in, in, in the back filling the feed bins, and there's that shiny new pitchfork. And the big question, of course, is what is going to happen next, you with that pitchfork that we all know that you want and no one watching over it? Well, here's the thing how you are going to act in that situation. I suggest, though it certainly is the case that you and I, in that situation, are free. We always make a big deal of human freedom, and that, and that is important. We are free. I suggest this for your consideration. Does this not match up to your experience? If, let's, let's have the example be actually it's someone you know who's there. If you know that person well, will you be able to predict what that person is going to do right now, yes or no? What's my point? We act from habit. Put yourself in almost any circumstance. It doesn't have to be the one with the shiny new pitchfork we are creatures that though throughout our day we are making free decisions consistently, it simply is true to say that a major determinant of how we act day in, day out, is the habitual dispositions that we have already formed. So much so that someone who knows us well will be very much able to predict how we will act in almost any situation that we would find ourselves in. We don't often stop to think about this, but I'm inviting you to do so now to realize how important these things we're calling habits are. We are creatures of habit. We act from them consistently. And so it's extremely important that we know what they are and that we know how they are formed and whether there is a possibility of changing them. St. Thomas defines habit following Aristotle as a stable disposition to act in a certain way. A habit is a stable disposition to act in a certain way. How are those habits formed? Aristotle and St. Thomas simply say, as is clear from experience, they are formed by repeated actions. Aristotle says, actions of a certain kind tend to form habits of a corresponding kind. Very simple. First, let's just stop and, and may I put it through this way? May we wonder together at how, well, wondrously made we are. That it is the case that we form habits. Is absolutely fascinating. Why is it the case that we are so designed that by acting a certain way we will tend to be grooved, I like to say, in such a way that we will tend to keep acting that way. We need to reflect together a little bit on this. Clearly it was part of God's design that there be this spiritual aspect of us that by acting in a certain way, it puts a certain groove in our powers so that that power takes on a real character such that it will tend to keep doing this. Very simple analogy from the, from the bodily realm is how that happens with our muscles. Isn't it kind of neat, again, how, I mean, how wondrously the body works in that way that if you do a, just a particular motion, We all know this if we've done any exercise. Just do a certain motion consistently. Your muscles take on a certain strength from that. There also starts to be a certain muscle memory. Now, that's not the kind of habit that we're talking about, but it's a very good analogy to help give us the sense. Clearly, our bodies are so designed. It is for our good that that reality takes place. That by repeated acts of a certain kind, our body kind of takes on a new character. Well, clearly, it is that way in our soul also, that our powers of soul, by acting in certain ways with those powers, reason, will, especially, that those powers themselves become grooved and grow, as it were, taking on a certain character very similar way to the way our muscles of our body do. Why does it make sense? Let's, let's get a little bit technical here and I'm going to tell you something that St. Thomas says where why is it that it is good, he even goes so far as to say that to live as we should, we need to have habits. We need to have good habits. If our powers are to work as they should, if we are to act as we should, we need to have formed these habits. Well, he points out that Certain powers of our soul do not need habits. Simple example, the power of growth. The power of the soul, but a power that takes place is enacted in the body. Growth is a very simple thing. It's really only done one way. So you don't have or form habits of how you grow. It is a power that's so simple that it just is designed to go. The power of will, especially, is a very different thing. There are so many things that need to come together for a will action to be what it should be that St. Thomas says it makes sense that the will be so designed such that it will take on this character called a habit which is this stable disposition that becomes, as it were, a kind of second nature. St. Thomas likes this line, it basically comes from the thought of Aristotle, that a habit is like a second nature. And if it is a good one, then it is a perfection of that power. If it is a bad one, then it is a fault of that power. Here's a neat aspect if we look a little bit deeper than the beauty of that by my acting in certain ways, by my powers taking on certain permanent stable dispositions, I become then, you can say, a certain kind of person. This is another angle into seeing how beautiful it is and what a gift it is. Flip side, how bad it will be if we don't use it well. But what a gift it is that we are so disposed that we will form these habits. Consider this. By acting courageously, consistently, in forming this habit, you can truly say, I become a courageous man who is courageous even when I am not acting courageously. See if there if there were no such thing as a habit, think how strange this would be. I know this is philosophy at times helps us look at very fundamental things or asking questions that we wouldn't necessarily have asked. What if it weren't the case? that we formed these habits, that every time you go into a situation, you have to kind of decide anew, hmm, will I act courageously right now or not? Will I act courageously right now or not? Versus by consistently acting courageously, we, the powers of my soul, take on a certain disposition so that you can say, I have become metaphysically a courageous kind of thing. I have become a courageous kind of person. I am now habitually courageous. And, and, and note the truth. This is, not, this is not being said in simply a poetic way. There's a real truth of this. If I am a courageous man, you might not be able to tell right now by looking at me, but it would be completely true For note, if you were to put me in a situation, I would act immediately and easily in a courageous way, for it would flow right out of what I am, for I have become courageous in the very depths of my being. I am, again, that kind of thing note another beautiful aspect of that if we did not form habits and become habitually stably this way think how difficult it would be to have real friendships real deep human relationships why do I say that because what is absolutely key in any friendship what am I about to say right now? I'll let you think of it in, in your mind. Trust. Well, uh, that was a good one. Trust. What I was, what I, that's a great specific, more specific. I was going to say more generically, but very much related to that. You need to know one another. Now think about this. What would there be to know about someone if there weren't habitual dispositions? where you have become stable as the kind of person that acts this way. Do you see how it gives me a certain stability, a certain depth and beauty of character, when I can have that kind of habit, a good one, that's called a virtue, such that it's so beautiful. Let's turn it around and I'm sick of using myself as an example. where I look at someone else and imagine, well, hopefully we don't have to imagine having this possibility, being able to look at someone and say, I know as surely as that the sun is going to rise tomorrow that I can depend upon this person to work for my good. As surely as the Sun is gonna rise tomorrow I know I can depend upon that person in X Y or Z way the only way that 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 can ever be true is if we have real virtues a fascinating and challenging point If we don't have virtues, as this is to go in another direction, if we were talking about friendship, we'd spend a bit of time on this. But note how this fits here. If we don't have stable dispositions, these good habits called virtues, how can anyone be a friend of ours? Or rather, I'd say, how can we be a friend to anybody? A couple of the basic things. These habits are either good or bad. St. Thomas says it is essential to habit to imply some relation to a thing's nature insofar as it is suitable or unsuitable to it. That's not on your handout. It's essential to habit to imply some relation to a thing's nature insofar as it is suitable or unsuitable thereto. What is he saying in a technical way? Every moral habit will either be a good one, namely it is in accord with human nature, with the moral order. It is either habitual disposition wherein the right order of reason has become truly ingrained in us, and thus what we call a virtue, or it will be a habit that is contrary to the natural order, and thus what we call a vice. But key in laying this whole situation out, ladies and gentlemen, is to recognize it's that ugly, the real possibility that through repeated actions, we can become habitually, firmly, someone who goes in the wrong direction, has something that's contrary to our happiness and the happiness of all those around us, have become truly a, as it were, part of who we are. A few other aspects of being virtuous, of having good habits. When we have a good habit, ladies and gentlemen, It actually makes our actions be better than they would be if we didn't have that habit. I'll say that again. We can perform good actions even if we don't habitually perform that good action. That's absolutely the case. But Aristotle would say, I'm about to turn you to a text on this. It's a challenging one that points out in action that flows from having the habit is in fact a better action than an action that does not. And to see that, ladies and gentlemen, we need to make a distinction, there's a very important one in moral philosophy, between what kind of action is done and how the action is done. Again, our distinction here, this important one in understanding human acts, is a distinction between what kind of action is done and how the action is done. On this thing, I'm going to ask you to look at your text. If you don't, don't have it, you can just let it flow over you. This is in Aristotle's great Nicomachean Ethics, from which I'll be reading you a couple of more quotations. It is the one that is numbered number one under some quotation from Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. Again, the case of the arts and that of the virtues are not similar. For the products of the arts have their goodness in themselves, so there is enough that they should have a certain character. But if the acts that are in accordance with the excellences, that's another n- name for virtue, have themselves a certain character, it does not follow that they are done justly or temperately. Sorry, that was a lead-in. This is now where we want to be. The agent, agent just means one acting also must be in a certain condition when he does them." All right, bear with me here. What he's saying is this, for our action to be all that it can be, not only do our actions need to be of a certain kind, they need to be a good kind of action, a just kind of action, a temperate kind of action, a courageous kind of action. He said, not only that, for the action to be all that it can be, not only does it need to be a certain kind of action, but needs to be done in a certain kind of way that's the how the action is done and that's what he's going to go into right here when he says the agents also must be in a certain condition when he does them in the first place he must have knowledge he must know what he is doing if you do a just act or courageous act without knowing what you're doing then it hasn't been done well that's obvious point doesn't take discussion second point he must choose the acts and choose them for their own sakes. We'll just touch and go on this because it's not what we want to focus on. If We might be doing a good kind of action, a courageous action, a just action. If we're not choosing it for the right reason, then that action is not what it could have and should have been. All right? That's what that second point is. That's rather obvious also. If I'm choosing to do a good action for some bad reason, that's not what that action should be. That's what point two is about. But now this one, this is the one that always takes my students by surprise and just seems downright strange. Thirdly, for the action to be all that it should be, his action should, must proceed from a firm and unchangeable character. Ladies and gentlemen, what Aristotle is asserting here is, is, is if you see what he's saying, you're going to find this strange. So if you're finding it strange, then you're seeing the point. Your action, two different people. This is an example that I use in, in the classroom, and it, it normally scandalizes people. So we'll see whether how we how we do here this evening. Quickly, compare the following two people. We're going to do that. We're going to go back to Kansas and the pitchfork. All right. So two different men. One, he looks at that pitchfork and he says, "Golly." Boy, that's a nice-looking pitchfork. I'd sure love to have that one. Kind of looks around the store. Is anyone watching? Ah, boy, I could, I, could, I, could, I could take that pitchfork right now. Hmm. And, then, and, and there's this kind of drama. What, what should I do? And then he says, no, that's not right. I'm not going to do it. So he doesn't take the pitchfork, all right? That is Sam. Gus comes along. Gus wants the pitchfork in the exact same way that Sam does. But what does Gus do when he sees that pitchfork? He says, wow, gee, look at that beautiful pitchfork, and he goes about his business. He, he doesn't even know, or maybe he notices, isn't that funny, no one's around watching over it. Huh, isn't that something? Goes about his business. And I ask my students, which one has performed a better action? Now what? Honestly, we proceed to talk about that for about half an hour. <laughs> Alright? So I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version of that discussion because you've made an effort to come out here tonight. We're just going to cut right to the chase. And in any case, I'm going to tell you what I think the fruit of that discussion should be, or in any case, what Aristotle would have to say about it. A lot of the students like to say this. They performed the same action there is no difference in their actions, for they both did the right thing. Full stop. There's a little difference in what led up to it. That sounds very reasonable, doesn't it? That's absolutely not what Aristotle would say. Let's be clear, because this is important. Aristotle is going to give credit to Sam. This is, not, this is not some type of hyperscrupulosity. Did Sam do a good action? Yes, he did. But he did not do an action as good as ultimately he could have, and should be able to do, which is what Gus did. Look at me. Look a little further with me. This is. I, see if you can hear Aristotle say that to you in the next few lines in this quotation. We're going to to begin the next paragraph there in your quotation. Actions, then, are called just, intemperate, when they are such as the just or the temperate man would do. But it is not, I'm going to put in the word necessarily, it's not necessarily the man who does these that is just and temperate, but the man who also does them as just and temperate men do them we're, able to, were able to hear what he just said? It's a subtle point. I'm going to read it again. Actions then are called just and temperate when they are such as the just or the temperate man would do. But it's not necessarily the man who does these that is just and temperate, but the man who also does them as just and temperate men do them. This is the distinction between what is done, and how it is done. And ladies and gentlemen, what what, what I'm moving us towards seeing here is the challenge of how good your and my actions should be. The main challenge here this evening is going to be this. We might have thought that the fundamental challenge of the moral life is simply to do the right thing. That is, of course, profound and central. Aristotle and St. Thomas are showing us something further. We should be becoming not just the man who does this kind of action, but the kind of man from whom they flow as water from the spring. We should be that kind of man. We should be the just man, not just someone who does just actions now and then but has that character of them the other example that i that i give and i think this one might strike home for you is giving alms to the poor someone comes along i mean you know here, here's me if i see someone in need of course you know sometimes it might be dangerous whatever just set that aside to simplify the the example for a moment hey here's someone in need ah you kind of get that ah oh, i'm so busy do i need to stop ah. Uh, But but it's it's the right thing. Uh, It's the right thing. Okay, And, and, and you go about doing it Versus mother Teresa She's walking along someone in need Bam It flows from who she is ladies and gentlemen, I might do the exact same thing that Mother Teresa did. But Mother Teresa's action is very different in an important way from mine. And this is what Aristotle and St. Thomas are inviting us to see. This isn't again to make us scrupulous. It's to have us have a clear bead on the greatness that we are called to by having our good actions flow from who we are couple other points that are related to this. When we understand this point, we understand something very important about human happiness. And this is the right moment right here to see this. Have you ever heard the, f- the, the funny line from St. Augustine, one of the four great Western Fathers of the Church, when he says, love God and do what you will that's a famous line from from St. Augustine love God and do what you will that captures a very important truth here I put it to you this way here's one way of picturing what human happiness is Aristotle says that human happiness is to live virtuously That sounds very pious and nice right but let's get inside seeing what he's just said to us about virtue I'm going to invite you to see in a much richer way so we understand this for ourselves and we're ready to give an account to other people as to why being virtuous doesn't just make you happy. Aristotle does not say being virtuous makes you happy. He says being virtuous is being happy. Why? We are designed to do what we no, you have to take this rightly. We are designed to do what we want to do. Can you imagine, can you picture a happiness wherein what you're doing is not what you want to be doing? You can't. Can you, Happiness has to look like this. We're doing what we want to do. So here's the way of understanding what Aristotle is saying to us about virtue. Virtue is from the depth of your being to want what is right. And so it's true simply, when we see that simple truth, ladies and gentlemen, to be virtuous is habitually to want what is right. So if we are virtuous, we habitually want what is right and do it. And we're doing exactly what we most wants to do. How else could we even picture what happiness would be if it's not doing always what you want to do and what you want to do is what's best for you. Ladies and gentlemen, to me, that's the most simple way to put why the holy are, even from a natural viewpoint, happy. You can see it in their face. They always want to do what is genuinely the best thing to do, and they enjoy doing it. And that's exactly what Aristotle means by virtue. It has become so habitual that it is a joy. Another point here, there's a very practical one, and a little bit of a scary one. You ready for this? Habits affect how we see the world. Habits affect how we see the world. Now to, to do this in the, in the course I'm teaching, just so you know, with, with, with my undergrads, a- and they are no slouches. Th- this takes us a couple weeks to do what I'm going to do here in about six minutes. So <laughs> hang with me. Fasten your seatbelts. Let's think together, and I think we can, we can see a, a very beautiful and challenging point. In a sense, it's one of those things where you can, you can absolutely say it in six minutes. We it would take a lifetime to appreciate it. Habits affect how we see the world. More, effect, more specifically, they affect what we see as good or evil. What is the bottom line here, ladies and gentlemen? The bottom line is this. Our habitual inclinations make their objects Appear good to us. That's the that's the key functioning point. I'll say that again our habitual inclinations Cause their objects to appear good to us Let me explain You this works For good habits or for bad habits, whatever our habitual inclination is is having that habitual inclination affects how we judge how we see this particular area simple example a little bit of an ugly one but here here it is to the man who is intemperate to the man who lets his bodily desires govern him his judgment is perverted for his desires Habitually move towards something that is bad. But because his inclinations habitually move towards that, his very inclinations affect how he sees it. By the fact that he is inclined towards it, he will consistently tend to judge it, see it as good because of his very desire for it the flip side when we have the right inclination towards what is truly good then by having that inclination that actually clarifies our vision so that that object will tend to appear good to me again by the fact that i have that what i'm calling the habitual inclination i will tend to judge that thing to see that thing as good this leads ladies and gentlemen to the rather amazing assertion that aristotle makes i'm about to show you in the text that some of you have heard me quote before to the good man what he means by the good man then is the man of virtue Listen to this amazing assertion. To the good man, to the virtuous man, things appear as they really are. Why? Because his good inclinations incline him to see what is truly good as good. So he sees things as they are and will judge aright. Whereas, on the flip side, to the bad man, what is bad appears good, and it makes all the difference. Let's take a a quick peek here. I am at quotation number five, which is on the back of your page. Five, but the end, that just means what is good basically, but the end appears to each man in a form answering to his character. Do you see how that's saying? The end appears to the man in a form answering to his character, we reply that if each man is somehow responsible for the state he is in, he will also be himself somehow responsible for how things appear. I'm going to come back to that in a moment go to number six. Since the good man judges each class of things rightly, and in each the truth appears to him, for each state of character, state of character is a translation of the term habits, that's just habit, state of character is habit. For each habit has its own ideas of the noble and the pleasant, and perhaps the good man differs from others most by seeing the truth in each class of things, being, as it were, the norm and measure of them. Listen, um, there's a lot going on here, just going to make a couple more points on, on this point and then I'm going to move uh, towards wrapping up. Involved here is, what's the scary point? <clears throat> One way that he just put it in that quotation is, we are responsible to a very real degree for how things appear to us. Why? His reasoning is very simple. We are responsible for our habits, for our habits are the fruits of our own chosen actions. Our habits affect how things appear to us. And so because we are responsible for our habits, and our habits affect how things appear to us, we are thus responsible in a very real and important way for how things appear to us so if we have gotten ourselves into a situation where what is bad is consistently appealing to us he is calling us out on this and saying to some real extent that is your fault for we have let ourselves do these actions that cultivate this disposition in us that makes what is not good all the more appear good to us. Where on the flip side, note how beautiful this aspect is. The man, when we cultivate the good habits and are inclined to what is truly good, he says, of that man, you can call that man, the last line of quotation six, the norm and the measure. This leads. This is the basis for why Aristotle would say something like this, if you want to know what is just, if you want to know what is temperate, what is the absolute best way to find out what is just or what is temperate? Rather than going to any book, You go to the just man or the temperate man. Ask him. He knows, for he can judge from his own right inclinations. Or put it this way. I I, I know right now, this is where sometimes students start to get that sense of, come on, is this a fairy tale or something? (laughs) Is anybody like this out there in real life, we might ask? Ladies and gentlemen, I challenge you. To a certain extent, I put this challenge to you. If you haven't met somebody like this, then let's ourselves give someone else the opportunity to meet someone like this. Because it can be done. Someone in whom the order of reason has become so firmly. And lovingly embodied take that person put him in almost any circumstances and as it were turn him on and he's gonna think rightly about the situation I'm not saying he'll never need to take counsel but fundamentally it's the man of virtue that not just can be counted on to act rightly but can be counted upon to judge well in general, be a great judge of character, because he can recognize character by a connaturality. Not that he would ever do so in pride, but by a certain connaturality with himself. If someone's not temperate or chaste, he can pick up on that in general, because he's so much more perceptive by having had that order of reason incarnated in his own powers. The Last point I'd like to, to make is an implication about education and the upbringing of children. Aristotle is, a, is very concerned and talks much about the raising of children. And why, does he, why is he particularly concerned? Here, here's the beautiful thing, ladies and gentlemen. He, he, he's, he's, he is always thinking very clearly about these things. One way you could say it, to encapsulate, in a sense, the whole project of raising the young and of educating, in the most important sense, it is to be forming habits. It is to be forming their desires. It is to be forming them so that they will be habitually inclined in a certain way. Imagine what it's like to have formed young people so that they come to a certain point where turn them loose, watch them go, that fundamentally their inclinations are going in the right direction now. This this is how we think about... Education of the youth. Look at look at quotation number two, if you would, on the first page. Thus, in one word, states, habits, arise out of like activities. This is why the activities we exhibit must be of a certain kind, in other words, the actions that we do must be of a certain kind. It's because the habits, states, correspond to the differences between these. It makes no small difference, then, whether we form habits of one kind or of another from our very youth. It makes a very great difference, or rather all the difference. I've said before, I've quoted my great teacher who has read Aristotle more than, well, he's a great master of Aristotle. And he says, I know no place else in Aristotle where he said the same thing three times in a row. And where does he say the same thing three and a times in a row? that it makes all the difference what habits we form from our youth. Third quotation. I'm going to skip through a couple of lines. Bottom of the page. for, For moral excellence, skip the first sentence or two. For moral excellence is concerned with pleasures and pains. It's an account of pleasure that we do bad things an account of pain that we abstain from noble wants. Hence, here he, Aristotle, quotes his teacher, hence we ought to have been brought up in a particular way from our very youth, as Plato says, so as both to delight in and to be pained by the things that we ought, for this is the right education. Isn't that a great line? To be trained to be pained by what should cause us pain and to delight in what should delight us. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to close by telling you, Aristotle is in fact very dark on the chances of someone who has formed very bad habits of such a person ever turning around. Here's the thing. I don't want to, in a facile way, say, but don't worry about it. (laughs) But I do want to say, we are Christians, and Aristotle was not. And one thing that Aristotle could not have known of is the power of the Holy Spirit, of the grace of Christ. He could not have known of the likes of St. Augustine who was a man of very bad habits, who came to see the truth, but who is a great example, a great example of Aristotle's whole point of, it's one thing to come to understand the truth, but when your habitual inclinations are going that way, just because you come to understand the truth, that does not dot, 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 right? You know, I don't even have to finish the sentence. Does that mean you're going to be able to turn around right away? The profundity of this reality, that we are creatures of habit, and it would be a kind of hubris, it would be a kind of pride to think, well, that's okay, I can just stand above that. God has designed, if I may put it this way as a Christian, God has designed us so that we do form these habits if, for whatever reason, we all find ourselves in a situation, whether it's in part through the fault of others, or it's always going to be at least in part due to how we have acted. What's a key truth that we can see here? See the truth of how serious that is, what a difference for life that makes, but then recognize, OK, by the grace of God, And scripture shows this very clearly. We can turn around, but that Greek maxim, know thyself. We can leave here tonight asking ourselves, looking more closely and helping our friends and loved ones, what habitual dispositions have we formed? Who are we? And why do we act as we act anyway? And that will be the beginning of, by the grace of God, being able to turn those habits in us that are not what they should be to being what they should be. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Uh, Franciscan
0: Father of Mexican I don't know how much he struggled with the decision to give up his life, but uh, many of us, to many of us, it might seem as though somebody who really had to struggle to do a courageous
1: and uh, deserve more credit or so on. Uh, right. Now, this this must have come deep from his character. Right. right. It did. But uh, to deal with that, though, we usually get, seem to say, what a heroic act. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Somebody who had well, the struggle. I, well, I, I I see the question. And so I'll, the, I would just throw out there, I, I think it is important for us to to remember that there is a great nobility in overcoming bad inclinations. And so the person has to struggle against temptation. This this is in no way to, to, to minimize the beauty of that and that there is a credit and an honor due to that. But what we're focusing on here is that we're taking it to the next step, and we're trying to be clear of what the goal is, what, what, what we are striving for to form. And so that what God, I'd say, is calling us to, what He wants for us, is that we go through that to be beyond that to where now it does flow forth easily. But this is not to look down our nose on or to discredit the other, but just to see where they are in the hierarchy. And it is beautiful to be able to see those ones that are such a great example of it flowing forth, even with a certain ease. Can a society said
0: to have habits?
1: That is a great question. Can a society be said to have habits? I'd say there, what Aristotle deals with is, is, is a very interesting notion of, custom. Customs is a rich notion that carries with the sense of this people tends to act in these ways. And there's ways that these customs are passed on. We use the word custom normally for in, in a more shallow way, and we think of just what you do on a particular feast day or something. And of course, those are customs. But his notion of custom is a deeper one. There's, there's a, and there's a kind of habitual communal aspect there so it's obviously not a habit in the full voluntary sense to what we're talking about here but but great point because it's important for us to recognize that when the customs of a society are bad they will tend to in, to cultivate in us bad habits good societal customs move us towards good habits. So a very, very excellent question.
0: Can you comment on the church's practice of fasting and how that might help us to form stable dispositions?
1: Fasting is a beautiful way of having a multi-valence, a multi-purpose, where it can be a beautiful sacrifice to God and fit in liturgically. It also has that aspect of training our desires. And so that we are, first of all, begin by disciplining and getting a certain strength of will. So there's several different things going on. First of all, just to strengthen our will in in being able to overcome bodily desires is often a first step in forming other good habits. Because the first step often is to be willing to do something that we don't feel like doing. The beautiful thing is the more that we continue to choose to do something we didn't feel like doing the more we will tend to start to actually want to do it but often has to begin as overcoming a bad desire so note how fasting strengthens the will to be able to overcome even if it's not a bad desire it is it's practicing us in overcoming a bodily desire which particularly given our fallen state the, the process of forming virtues, good habits, is always going to involve, to a certain extent, using our willpower to overcome certain inordinate desires that are going on in the body. So it's, so it's it, it, in, in several ways, it is strengthening our will. It also is starting to train the appetite itself to be more quiet. In a, in a sense, appetite that is more quiet is on the way to being better ordered couple quick thoughts for you that's a great that's a great question i was my question
0: is from the mindset of from the aristotelian mindset or that of saint thomas aquinas is it possible to reconcile that with the categorical imperative of kant or are the two just fundamentally opposed that
1: that is a that's a big question. That's a kind of a that's a good and somewhat difficult philosophical question, and we can talk more afterwards, but I will say a word about it. The categorical imperative is at the center of Immanuel Kant's um, moral philosophy. In general, Kant is seen as, and he is someone that is holding a very different view. It doesn't mean that there's anything in common, but a fundamental principle of Kant's tends to be that the harder it is for you to do something, the better it is. And if you are doing something that you are inclined to do, that that actually makes the action be worth less. Not necessarily worthless, but worth less. And so I'd say there, interestingly, there's not to paint with too broad a stroke, but Kantian moral philosophy tends to be more closely associated with a number of Protestant ethics And it's interesting, this is kind of a side point, that Catholic moral theology tends to more go in the kind of Aristotelian Thomistic direction of we transform our desires by the grace of God. We can have the order of reason so put into them that now we are acting this way with ease and joy, which is something that tends to not show up in that Kantian system. To say that, I'm not saying that there's nothing of worth there and it doesn't have some fine ideas. But your question is very much to the point, because in general, it is making points that are opposite to those that we made here.
0: Um, I hope I can do this in one sentence. Uh, going back to the cancer story with the pitchfork, um, when um, was it Sam on Sam and um, When you said Sam uh, you know, struggled, mm-hmm. did that be considered temptation? and if that's the case what is the difference between overcoming temptation and just man? is adjustment is adjustment not just not being tempted or is he just totally ignoring temptation how's that working in their mind
1: F- fa- 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 fabulous question and th- there's a, there's a i don't want to oversimplify but i but I, but i will say this here this this it can be it can be hard it can be hard for us to fathom this but there is an important truth captured in what i'm about to say i believe i think um, the, the virtuous man, in general, is much less prone to have temptation. For in general, there's different kinds of temptations. But I think the thing we most often think of when we're talking about temptation is that we're having these bad desires that then we have to overcome. And again, there is a certain nobility in overcoming them. But it is interesting to note that at times. At times, there is an aspect that actually is our fault. That had we worked harder, we actually wouldn't have had these desires that we still need to overcome. Now, I don't want to take that so far. In our fallen state, there will always be certain temptations that everybody can experience. But it is true to say that there are, are many fewer temptations of the kind of having these desires for bad things arise in us, the more we grow in being habitually disposed well, the more we grow in virtue, the less we have to deal with that. And doesn't that fit in again with connecting, being virtuous with that kind of happy, peaceful state? Thank you so much, you You're very welcome. Thank
0: you very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ's Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.